At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. When I was growing up, I used to love rest, watching wrestling on TV. Anybody remember WWF? Yeah? Oh, yeah. And it became the WWE. I, I can't keep track of the acronyms. Anyway, when I was growing up, um, it used to be Hulk Hogan and the uh, Ultimate Warrior and Roddy Rowdy Piper. Oh, some of you know them. And it wasn't until, and I have to tell you, my mom yelled at me because I, I went through a number of couches and bed frames trying to reenact all of those acrobatic stunts that I saw on TV. I thought that was pretty cool till I got to my teens and I learned that that wasn't real. <laughs> that it wasn't really wrestling either. And that real wrestling is boring. <laughs> it doesn't have any theatrical mumbo jumbo and, and all of the, the stuff that goes with television drama called wrestling. But as I grew up, while I may have stopped watching wrestling on TV, I started wrestling with other things. You know what I'm talking about, life decisions. And we all wrestle with those things. We wrestle with where should we go to college? What major should we study? We wrestle with should I date that person or not? We wrestle with should I take that job offer or not? Should we take that opportunity or not? We wrestle with these things and we wrestle and when we use that word wrestle, we use it in such a simple and perhaps naive way. We use it as if though we had control that we can opt in and out of those kinds of things like we can opt in and out of a gym membership. But when you read the Bible, you find that that word wrestle is used in a completely different context. You see, wrestling in the Bible is not something we ever seek out. Wrestling is something that finds us, usually when we least expect it. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 32. We're going to look at a single episode in the life of Jacob. We looked at Jacob before. In fact, several months ago when we were journeying through the book of Genesis, we looked at the first families and we remember looking at Jacob. We skipped this little section, but I think this is a powerful section. If you if you remember Jacob, Jacob was a well, he was named Jacob because he was a heel grabber. He was a deceiver. He was a cheater. You remember he tricked his brother out of his birthright. He deceived his father and wrestled the, the blessing, the family blessing from his brother Esau. In fact, Esau was so ticked off and so angry with him that Esau, that Esau vowed to kill Jacob. And so Jacob ran for his life and left home with nothing but a walking stick and ran, ran north, ran towards his uncle Laban's house. And in uncle Laban's house, he spent 20 years. And in 20 years, he married both of Laban's daughters. He ended up having 11 children while living with Laban. And he ended up with a wealth of livestock. And then when you come to chapter 31, you find God calling to him and telling him to return, to leave his home with Uncle Laban and to go back to his father's home, which is in the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And Jacob obeys. Jacob gets up and he gets his family and his livestock and they start heading south. But every step he makes home, he's worried. He's scared. Because he knows that every step homeward is a step closer to an encounter with his brother. You see, for 20 years, he's lived with the memory of having cheated his brother. 
For 20 years he's lived with wondering whether Esau still wanted to kill him or not. For 20 years he's hid hoping that other people would forget him. But now he's on his way home and he's on his way to a fateful encounter with his brother Esau. Have you ever been there? Where there are some places you don't want to go, some people you don't want to see, some events you don't want to relive because they hold a lot of pain. There are things you have tried to forget perhaps for 20 years or 40 years or 50 years or whatever it might be. You've held on to those memories and you want nothing to do with them. You don't want to bring them back to the surface of your mind because they contain pain and they contain terror. For Jacob... It was, in fact, terror. He had sent messengers to to his brother Esau to let him know he was on his way to meet him. And Jacob gets news back that Esau is on his way. Well, that was good. But the rest of the news wasn't good because Esau is on his way to meet Jacob with 400 military-armed fighting men. 400 military men constitutes a military unit. And Jacob is filled with terror because he's afraid Esau is coming to exact vengeance. He's afraid Esau is coming to kill him. And when we pick up the story in verse number 22 of Genesis chapter 32, we find a Jacob who has come to the end of himself. A Jacob who has nowhere to run. A Jacob who knows in just a day or two, he's going to have to face his greatest fear. And as we look at this story, the message I want to leave with you this morning is that God breaks us in order to bless us. God breaks us in order to bless us. And as we look at this story, I want to share with you two lessons I learned as I studied this story. And the first is God wants to break us of our self-sufficiency. God wants to break us of our self-sufficiency. I'm in Genesis chapter 32, verse number 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So here Jacob is, he's mere moments away from crossing this river, crossing into the promised land, and he knows that it's an imminent, foregone conclusion that Esau is going to be waiting for him, that he's going to have this fateful encounter. So in the middle of the night, under cover of darkness, he does everything he can. He breaks his camp, his family, into two strategic camps, hoping that if Esau attacks one, the other can get away. He prays. In fact, the longest recorded prayer in the book of Genesis is from the lips of, of Jacob. And he prays to God, reminding God of the promises that God had made to him and asking God for God's protection. And then he does what, well, he normally does. He, he, he does whatever it takes to succeed. He takes 550 animals from his group of livestock and he sends them in wave after wave to his brother as a gift. But let's not get ourselves. It's not really a gift. It's more of a bribe. He's trying to bribe his brother to appease him in order to make sure that he's he's softened up by the time Esau gets to Jacob. At least that's his hope. 
And then in verse number 22, he takes his family and his livestock, his children, everything, and he sends them across the Jabbok River, and he stays behind. And the Bible there in verse number 24, the beginning of that verse says, and he was left alone. He was left alone. It's the first time in 20 years that he's been really alone. 20 years ago, when he was on the run from his brother with nothing but a walking stick in his hand, he was alone back then. And at that point, he had an encounter with God at a place he would call Bethel that was profound and amazing. But ever since that moment, he's never been alone. He's been surrounded by Laban and his family. He's been surrounded by his wives. He's been surrounded by his his children. He's been surrounded by his livestock. It's been noisy. It's been chaotic. It's been messy. It's been loud. It's never been quiet, and it's never been lonely. But now Jacob, Jacob is alone. He's got nowhere to run, and he's got no place to go, and Esau's coming. Have you ever been there where you are alone? We don't like to be alone, do we? Anybody like to be alone? I, I didn't think so. Oh, we have one. All right, we'll, we'll pray for you later. <clears throat> do we like silence? No, we don't like silence because what do we do? We're always on the phone. We're tweeting, we're texting, we're Facebooking, we're, tw- we're, we're TikToking. If that's a verb, I don't know. We're on YouTube. We're, we're on video calls, face calls, whatever. We're always busy. And when that's not happening, the TV's on. Radio's on. Our favorite streaming app is running music in the background. Why? Because none of us like silence. Do we? We need noise. We need people. We need something to keep us moving. And we're so busy that we get up in the morning, we take a shot of coffee or tea or our favorite energy drink, and we're go, go, go until we drop exhausted in bed. And we have no time for God, no time for silence, no time for his word. And we have no time to be quiet long enough for God to speak to us. And that was Jacob. For 20 years, he's been on the run. He's never been alone. And here he is on the banks of the Jabbok River, and he's all alone. And in verse, at the end of verse number 24, it says, And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. If you've ever been to Israel, you've ever been to these kinds of places, there's no lights. There's no city nearby. There are no people nearby. The only sound is the rushing of the river. Otherwise, it's quiet, it's dark, it's lonely. And have you ever been there where something happens, you jump out of your skin? Like you're so scared, like you just have one of those moments where you jump? That's got to be what Jacob must have felt like. Because he's all alone. As far as he's concerned, all his family's gone. There's nobody around. It's quiet. And all of a sudden, a hand grabs him. And his mind is racing. Who could that be out in the middle of nowhere? Perhaps it's his brother Esau who's come to take him out. Or perhaps it's an assassin sent by his brother to do him in. He doesn't know. It's a flight or fight response. And so Jacob does what he naturally, instinctively does. He starts to fight for his life. Let me just pause there for a minute and say, you and I who know the story or who've read the story, we know that this man isn't a man, is he? He's the angel of the Lord. This is a, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. So in essence, Jacob is wrestling who? He's wrestling God. But let me also say 
Who initiated this fight? Who picked this fight? If you read this story, it isn't Jacob who picked this fight. It was God. In the middle of the night, here's Jacob sitting across the other side of the Jabbok River all by himself. And God shows up and picks a fight with Jacob. Many of you who've heard this passage, you've heard it in relationship to prayer and the importance of intercessory prayer and praying all night and, and wrestling with God through the night for, in prayer. And that's all good, but that's not what this passage is about. The more I read this passage, the more I'm convinced that this is about a God who loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us the way he found us. That a God who loves us so much, he doesn't want to leave us the way he found us. Jacob is alone, and into the middle of his quiet, alone time, God touches him. And Jacob instinctively reacts and he fights for his life. And if God is wrestling with Jacob, why did it take all night? Isn't God omnipotent, all-powerful? Why does this fight take all night? I'm so glad you asked. Have you ever wrestled with your children? I have. All three of my children they, the, the wrestling goes on all day, sometimes hours. They'll get me into every sort of position I can think of. I will play whatever monster they want me to play. I will be a horse or a gorilla or a dragon or whatever creature they want, and we will wrestle, and they will be on top of me, and they will be laughing and giggling and fighting. Can I stop that fight in an instant? I could flick them off if I wanted to, couldn't I? But I don't. Why? I'm their father. This is Jacob's father. God the father doesn't want to flick Jacob off. This fight could have ended in a nanosecond. But God doesn't do that. You know why? Because God allows Jacob to wrestle with him all night to show him the depth of his self-will and his self-dependence. Jacob has been fighting and wrestling and grabbing things all his life. He has been wrestling with every single person in his life. But the truth is, he has been wrestling with God through it all. And God brings him to this point to show him the depth of his self-will. And then we find that as daybreak approach, approaches... And because Jacob is unwilling to tap out, unwilling to concede, unwilling to cry uncle, the man touches Jacob. Boop, right there. Right there. Anybody ever dislocated a hip socket? Nobody? I have. <laughs> Just a couple of, uh, a year ago actually, I jumped off a, a hedge, I jumped off a ledge and thinking I was young and strong and found out I was stupid, uh, I popped I popped this hip socket. It was painful. I couldn't sit. I couldn't stand. I couldn't lie down. I couldn't sleep. I needed so many drugs just to keep me uh, in my mind because I was out of my mind in pain with one touch. And you know, when I was young, I'd read this story and I'd think, God, that's not fair. Like, why did you do that? Like, nobody else can do that. Why did you do that? But as I've gotten older, I've learned that God doesn't play fair. Now, don't misunderstand me. God is holy and just and right and true, and he always is. What I mean is God doesn't play by your rules and mine. You see, we have, all, we have all defined God our way. We've all put him in a box with boundaries, and we say, this far and no more. And you know what God says to that? 
Ha! God doesn't live in the box we make for him. God doesn't play in the boundaries we've set for him. God is God and he is sovereign and he will do what he pleases for his good, for his glory, and for our good. Amen? And so with one touch, just one, boop, right there, the hip socket dislocated. Just one touch. And Jacob goes from being a wrestler to someone who can't even stand up. But why this location? Why the hip socket? Because the hip socket is the strongest joint for any wrestler. Without that hip socket being in place, a wrestler can't push back. A wrestler can't stand up. A wrestler can't resist. There's a second reason why God touched him there. And that's because it prevents him from running. You see, Jacob has been running all his life. He's been running away from Esau. He's been running away from Laban. He's been running away from God. But now that the hip socket is out of place, he can't run anymore. He's got no place to go. He's done running. When we aren't paying attention to God, when we don't have time for him, when we can't stay still long enough to listen to his still small voice, sometimes God comes and he touches us in the point of our greatest strength. And he does that to show us that you and I are not in control. He shows us, he does that to show us all the idols that we've accumulated in our lives that we're hoarding and holding on to. He does that because he wants to show us the immensity of his love, a love that doesn't want us to stay the same the way he found us. And so he touches us at the point of our greatest strength. A couple of weeks ago, a lady at our Royal Oak campus was telling me her testimony. She had a wonderful husband who had a wonderful job and they had a wonderful income that allowed them to have a wonderful home with lots of stuff in it. But she didn't have time for God. And God brought a little bit of sickness. And that sickness hit her husband. And within days, her husband was gone to be with the Lord. And because her husband had died, the income dried up. And because the income dried up, she lost her home, she lost her goods, she lost everything. She had to move in to a rental home just to survive. She hit rock bottom. And when she hit rock bottom is when she realized that her husband and his money had become her idol. That her whole identity was wrapped up in her husband and in his income. And when God had stripped it all away, and God had taken it all away, And when she hit rock bottom, you know who she found waiting for her? She found Jesus. And she tells the story. That's when her eyes were opened to the fact that she'd been running all her life. And she needed Jesus. Friends, we have been running. We've been struggling. We've been doing the same thing Jacob has been doing, wrestling all our life, wrestling to grab every blessing we think that is rightfully ours. But what God wants to do is to break us of our self-dependence and our self-sufficiency and to bring us to the point where we're at the end of ourselves so that we can depend on him and to draw from him our strength, to draw from him our vitality, to draw from his resources to enable us to live in this earth. God wants to break us of our self-sufficiency, so that we can depend on him. The second lesson that we find in this story is that we find God's blessing in our brokenness. We find our blessing in our, we find God's blessing in our brokenness. Verse number 26 says, then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go 
unless you bless me. You see, Jacob's no longer wrestling. He's simply holding on. His hip is out of socket. He is in pain. What used to be a fair fight, what used to be perhaps an evenly matched wrestling match, is no longer evenly matched. One touch and his hip is out of socket and he's in pain. Jacob goes from fighting for his life to begging for a blessing. And he comes to realize that this man who's wrestling with him is no mere man, but he is in fact God. In verse number 27, the man says to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And I think, isn't this a little too late for introductions? I mean, shouldn't we have gotten that out of the way at the beginning of the fight? I mean, aren't we a little late? But God asks Jacob for his name. Is it because God didn't know Jacob's name? See, when God asks us a question, it's not because he doesn't know. It's not so that he can get information. God asks us questions so that he can elicit a confession from us. When he asks Jacob for his name, what he's asking is really, who are you really? And what does Jacob respond? I'm Jacob. And what he's saying is, I'm a heel grabber. I'm a deceiver. I'm a cheater. I'm a conniver. I've done it my way. I've done it in my strength. All my life, I've been on the run doing it my way to grab every blessing I can get a hold of. That's who I am. And when he confesses his name in verse number 28, God says to him, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. When Jacob confesses his name, when Jacob confesses his nature, God gives him a new name. You see, for the Hebrews, a name represented their identity. It represented their character. It represented their nature. And so when, when Isaac and Rebekah named Jacob, Jacob, they named him because he came out of the womb grabbing the heel of his brother. He was a heel grabber and his whole life met his name, matched his name. He was a cheater. He was a deceiver. That's who he was. But now, having confessed who he really was to God, God gives him a new name. A new name brings with it a new identity. It brings a new nature. It brings a new character. It brings a new destiny. It brings a new trajectory. And this man who once used to be called Jacob, God now calls him Israel, a man who strives with God and men and wins. Oh, and wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got a question. Didn't he lose the wrestling match? Yeah, he did. But then how can God call him a winner? You see, in the economy of God, in order to win, you must lose. In order to live, you must die. In order to be first, you must last. That is foolishness to us, isn't it? Isn't that what we learned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? What is foolishness to us is the wisdom of God. And in the economy of God, Jacob wins by losing. He gains the victory by surrender. He gets a new destiny when he confesses who he really was. He is now a man who wrestles with God and with men and prevails. Friends, what is your name? I don't mean the name your parents gave you when you were born, but who are you really? 
Perhaps you are Jacob. Perhaps you are the cheater, the scammer, the man who or a woman who can make it all work out for you, that you can grab it all in your own strength. Perhaps that's you. Or perhaps that's not you. Perhaps because of all the hurt and the pain and the abuse in your life and the anger, you become bitter and that's your name. Maybe your bitterness. Or perhaps your name is addiction. You're addicted to drugs or to alcohol or to whatever, and you haven't been able to break it. My friends, God is telling you, confess your name. Lay it on the altar of his grace, and God will give you a new identity. That'll give you a new nature. That'll give you a new trajectory. That'll give you a new identity in Jesus Christ. If you would but confess your name, God will change you and transform you, just like he did Jacob. God is in the business of not leaving us the same as he found us. He's always looking to break us so that he can bless us. And that blessing happens in brokenness. Just as God did with Jacob, God wants to do with you and me. Our old nature and our old character don't have to define us. They don't have to be the baggage we carry around, carry around all our life. They don't have to be what defines us. Our past doesn't have to haunt us. If you are in Christ, if you confess him as Lord and Savior, you'll become a new creation with a new identity and God will come into your life and adopt you into his family. <clears throat> That's what he did for Jacob. That's what he will do with every single one who will confess him as Lord and Savior. Are you willing to confess who you really are? When we come to verse number 30, we read that Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him, and he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. What a difference a night can make. The previous night he was Jacob. This morning he's Israel. Last night he had strength and vigor and walked proudly on his two feet. But this morning he's walking. He's walking with a limp. He's no longer that strong man he used to be. He's been broken. What a difference a night can make. And when he came to his family and they saw him limping, they would have asked him, what happened? And he could have easily swept it under the rug. They, he could have said, oh, just a little bit of arthritis. <clears throat> or I tweaked it crossing the Jabbok River. He could have come up with a number of excuses. But he didn't. He's no longer the old Jacob. God had transformed him. And so he told his family the story. And Moses, writing this story hundreds of years later, adds this little tidbit at the end that the children of Israel don't eat the sinew of, the, of, the, of animals that are connected here because, of, because God touched Jacob here. Friends, that's an object lesson. That's an object lesson that God wants to break us in order to bless us. That he brings us to the end of ourselves so that he can break us of our self-dependence. So that he can move us and give us a new name in him, in Christ, so that we can have a destiny that none of us deserve. But that also tells us another lesson that we can learn from that little tidbit. And that is, if God has touched you, if God has broken you, if you're walking with a limp, don't hold that story to yourself. Tell someone. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell the world because that story can be a blessing. That God has touched you and broken you and made you into a blessing so that your story can be an encouragement to someone else. Can you do that, church? Casey was a 26-year-old in St. Louis 
And at the age of 26, she was elected as an alderwoman to the city's sixth ward. She was the youngest elected politician at the time. She had a great heart to serve and to lead her people. In fact, she had such a calling to serve that she had set her eyes on being mayor of the city and that desire to be mayor was her all-consuming passion. She dreamt about it day and night. The problem was that desire was so strong that it became an idol for her. And within five years of being elected the city's youngest politician, she had to resign her office because of misappropriation of funds. She used campaign funds to pay for personal expenses. In an apology letter that she wrote, she would state, my actions were illegal and indefensible. Regrettably, my mistakes resulted not from need, but from greed and selfishness. When the story of her misappropriations broke, not only did she lose her political seat, but she lost her reputation, she lost her friends, she lost all her money, and she came to the end of herself. And in 2015, in a written testimony, she would go on to say, I know that even, not, even though I went through something emotionally grueling and devastating, it was necessary. I needed something of that magnitude to get my attention. The idols and distractions that I had built in my life needed to be torn down for God to get and retain my full attention. I learned that once you no longer have the position, the title, or perceived influence, people leave. This happened to me, and I now know there is no better friend than Jesus. You see, God touched her at the point of her greatest strength. God broke her of her desire, broke her of her political seat, broke her of all the things she held dear, and as everything else was stripped away, her money, her friends, her influence, her reputation, and when she hit rock bottom, you know who she found waiting for her there? She found Jesus. Jesus is always waiting. Friends, he's never moved. He's always there waiting for you and for me. If you're here this morning and you're struggling, struggling to make sense of the world, struggling with addiction, struggling with bitterness, struggling with anger, struggling with relationships, and you don't know Jesus Christ, can I introduce him to you? Jesus, who loved you, went to a cross 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. He died a death that you and I should have died to pay a penalty that we couldn't pay so those of us who put our faith and trust in him might come to know him by faith, that he might come to live in us, that he would give us a new identity, a new trajectory, a new destiny, a new name. He does that for everyone who bends their knee at the cross. Please don't leave here today without coming to know him by faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you have time for God? Or does God have to reach into your life and touch you at the point of your greatest strength? God breaks us so that he can bless us. He brings us to the end of ourselves so that we can stop relying on our strength and our resources and we can cling to him. Because every time we hit rock bottom, we'll always find Jesus waiting for us. May our brokenness become a blessing that we can share so the world might know that he is alive and he lives in me. And the reason we can have confidence is because of Jesus. 
You see, Jesus was broken on the cross for you and for me. The night of his betrayal, Jesus would take bread and we're going to celebrate in just a minute. He would take bread and he would say, this is my body which is broken for you. You see, God the Father loved us so much that he broke the body of Jesus. We should have experienced that. We should have been at the end of that. But God loved you and me so much, Jesus went to the cross and his body was broken. Isaiah chapter 55 says, 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him was laid the iniquity of us all. Friends, we can have the confidence in Jesus because Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. I want you to think back 2,000 years ago to a hill called Calvary. Perhaps it's a time for us to confess our sins. Perhaps it's a time for us to get right with God. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. The blood that speaks volumes. It speaks of the depth of our depravity and the depth of our sin. And even in the midst of our ugliness and our sin, you loved us and you died for us. Thank you for the cross. Because it is the blood of Jesus that forgives us and washes us white as snow. It's the death of Jesus Christ that paid a penalty that we couldn't pay. It's the resurrection of Jesus that gave us the hope of eternal life. So we thank you for loving us so much to do what we could never do, to add us into your family through the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, would you continue to minister in our hearts today? Would you continue to bless us And perhaps you need to do some work in each one of our lives, myself included, because we're stubborn. We don't want to let go. But Father, we pray that you would continue to move in us, to break us of our pride, to break us of our strength, to break us of our self-sufficiency, so we can truly see you for who you really are. And that in our nothingness, we might find you and cling to you and draw from you strength to be a witness for you, to declare to the world that Jesus lives. And may you be glorified in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.